So, after Jesus was crucified, he was buried and he rose again, ascended to heaven, came back, taught his disciples for about 40 days. And then he told them to go to Jerusalem and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And that was pretty it, pretty much it. He ascended to heaven and they hadn't seen him again. But his favorite disciple, John, was given a vision of him when he was on the island of Patmos. And in this vision, he told John to write letters to the seven key congregations in Asia Minor. And we're going through that book called the Book of the Revelation, John's entire vision of things that were and things that were to come. And we're in the section now, I think, about the things that were, the letters to the seven congregations. And today we're going to look at the congregation in the city of Smyrna. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I kind of like that. He says it's not what you have materially that makes you rich, it's what you have spiritually that makes you rich. You can't take your money with you to heaven, but you can take all the good deeds you've done and all the faith you had and bring that to heaven with you. He says, yeah, I know you're poor, but really you're rich. And I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison and test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. The second death, it refers to hell. You know, sometimes people will say, you know, you only live once. Well, if you only live once, you're going to die twice. The physical death, and then when everybody gets cast into hell, those who do, that's called the second death. You only live once, you're going to die twice. But if you live twice, you only die once. How do you live twice? Well, you're born physically, and then you're born again. So if people say, you only live once, not me. I live twice, and I'm only going to die once. All right, so in the letter to Smyrna, the Smyrnins, John follows the seven-point outline that applies to all the seven churches. So seven churches, seven congregation, seven-point outline. Here's the seven points I shared with you before. Each letter is addressed to an angel or a representative. The city is mentioned by name. Part of Messiah is revealed. Remember, in chapter uh, 1, John had a vision of Jesus. And his eyes were blazing like fire and his hair was white like wool. And he was radiating like the sun and his feet were like burnished bronze in a furnace. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. To each of these seven churches, he'll say something like, thus says the one whose eyes are blazing like fire. Or thus says the one with the sharp two-edged sword. So to each of the seven, a piece of his identification is mentioned. And number four, the congregation's good deeds are mentioned. Number five, the congregation's shortcomings are mentioned. Some of the congregations don't have any good deeds, so they're not mentioned. And some of them don't have any shortcomings, so they're not mentioned. Number six, in our outline, a warning is given. 
And number seven, a promise is given. And again, the warning would only apply to those who need it. All right, so we're in the city of Smyrna, which I'm sure you all know exactly where it is on a map. You do now, because <laughs> there's the map. That's the Mediterranean Sea, that big landmass to the north of the sea, that's Turkey today. Those dots you see on the map, a lot of those are part of the seven churches. Smyrna was uh, not too far from the ocean, not far from uh, Pergamum, really close to Ephesus. That word Smyrna, can you hear a word in there that you might know? Smyrna, myrrh. The city of Smyrna, its chief export was the spice myrrh. And so they believe it's called Smyrna because of the word myrrh. Smyrna was a very, very famous city. Um, one of history's most famous peoples from there, Homer, not your plumber, the guy who wrote the Odyssey and the Iliad, that Homer, he's from there. Today, um, Smyrna, which back then was one of the biggest cities in the Asian province of Rome, today it's one of the biggest cities in Turkey. It's the second or third largest, um, has about three million people in there today, and it's called Izmir today, so you might have heard of Izmir. Today it has like three million people. The king of Pergamum, Smyrna is part of um, that general area. The king of Pergamum, on his death, bequeathed that area to the Roman Empire. And so Rome took it over without a fight or a battle. And you might be thinking, why in the world would an independent king just give his kingdom to the Roman Empire? Why would you, who would do that? A very wise king, in my opinion. First of all, he told the Romans, when I die, I'll give you my province. So there's no reason to invade us and go to war. Ah, oh, okay. And in the meantime, we can be friends. And when I die, you can just move in. Now, had he not done that, there would have been a succession war, and Rome would have come in and probably destroyed the city. So he was pretty smart. It's not like he wanted to be swallowed up by Rome, but hey, when in Rome. He knew he was going to be swallowed up, so you might as well do it peacefully instead of by war. He was a smart leader. Well, the Smyrnans were kind of late to the Roman Empire, so they wanted to really bond and show that they were, you know, they were serious about their relationship to Rome. So they invented a goddess, and they named her Roma. And you could imagine the people in Rome were thinking, gee, why didn't we invent that goddess? That was pretty smart. So now everybody in the empire, especially in Rome, are starting to worship the goddess Roma, who the Smyrnans invented. Now, isn't that cool? Some of you are trying to invent an app. They were way ahead. We can invent a god. I mean, how lame is that? Gee, I think we need a new god. And you can just invent one? In the beginning, God created. God made man in his image, and yet man's been trying to make God. Crazy. Imagine, you know, if we did that in Tucson today, if we wanted to just make a god, what would he be the god of? The god of, like, rattlesnakes? God of dry heat? <laughs> Hades, he's already been invented. It's just crazy. And then, so you make a, a god, we'll call him the god of dry heat, and then you make a statue of him and you go, oh, he's our god, way, praise God, and you give him tithes and offering. How stupid is that? People spiritually blind make you spiritually stupid, worshiping a god they created. Wow, that's really lame. So here they are in Smyrna. 
Uh, John's writing to the Smyrnans. The lead pastor in Smyrna around this time was a guy named Polycarp. You might have heard of him because he has some writings that are still studied to this day. He's famous for those writings, and he was the disciple of the apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation. John. Wouldn't it be interesting if John knew that his disciple was going to be the bishop of Smyrna and would read his letter someday? It's an interesting thought. Another thing significant about Smyrna, most of the churches throughout the Roman Empire in the first couple of centuries were part Jewish, part Gentilish. They were kind of mixed. But in Smyrna, there's a very strong Jewish influence. It was much more messianic than many of the other congregations. Okay, so now you know a little bit about Smyrna. Uh, There's a few things in this letter to the Smyrnans I want to just draw your attention to. The first one is what Jesus calls himself. He says, I am the first and I am the last. Now, I shared this with you. I think it was just last week. When Jesus calls himself the first and the last, a person familiar with the body, with the Bible, would have understood he was saying something. He was calling himself God. Because in Isaiah 44, 6, it says this. This is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last, and apart from me, there is no God. So in Isaiah, God calls himself the first and the last. So when Jesus calls himself the first and the last, he's calling himself God. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. If you're familiar with the Bible, you would have gotten that. But if you're not, you're like, well, what's he talking about? What's that mean, I am the first and the last? Something about um, Jewish way of communicating and Jewish way of studying the scriptures reminds me of something two types of people today. There's actually two types of people today. There's those kind of people who you can give some of the information to and they can fill in the blanks. And then there's the rest of you. (laughs) In the Jewish way of studying the scriptures, they look at the Bible from four particular perspectives. Now, our main way of studying the scripture is this. When the plain sense makes sense, look for no other sense, or you'll end up with nonsense. In other words, don't make the scripture say something it doesn't say. Whatever it says is what it means. That's how we study the Bible. The plain sense makes sense, look for no other sense. Well, the Jewish people have that too. But the Jewish people have four altogether. And they made an an acronym or an acrostic, which is pardes, pardes, it's Hebrew. P stands for the word pshat. The Hebrew word pshat basically means simple. So the Hebrew way of studying the scriptures, the pshat way, is when the plain sense makes sense, look for no other sense. They got that one, they say it's true. But they also have one called remez. Remez is kind of like the word hint. An example would be what I just read to you. Jesus said, I am the first and I am the last. He didn't say he was God, but he strongly hinted at it. So that would be a remez way of looking at scripture. The third one is drosh, and that might be seek. You gotta do a little more work 
than the plain meaning. Drosh is kind of like remez, but maybe a little more, a little more imaginative, some imaginative comparisons. They will use similarities in words and phrases to draw your attention to what they want to say. There are times you can actually say something without saying something by giving somebody an idea of what you intend. Mine eyes have seen the glory. How many of you know what I'm talking about when I use those words right there? Let me see your hands. Ah, most of you. Not all of you, but most of you. So your mind automatically goes somewhere when you hear those words. And you can think of any other words like, what's a real famous commercial? Oh, can you hear me now? You know exactly what I'm talking about. But if you weren't raised in our culture, you'd have no idea what I was talking about. I could say something like this. I get poor coverage. Can you hear me now? And you'd all know exactly what I'm talking about. But if somebody dug up that statement in 50 years, they'd have no idea what I'm talking about. None whatsoever. They'd understand the words, but the meaning would be meaningless to them. Drosh. And then we have sod. Sod would be the mystical interpretation of Scripture. Mystery. It almost borders on Gnosticism. You've got to be a secret initiate to know what the Scripture's saying. Now, I'm not telling you all these are valid. I'm not telling you they're all right. I'm telling you how Jewish people interpret Scripture. And in at least some of these, it can actually help us understand Scripture a little better. So I gave you an example of Remez from Revelation, where he says he's the first and the last. Let me give you an example of Pshat. Titus 2.13 says this, While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's called our great God and Savior. There's no, you don't have to wonder what he's called there. It's just right out in your face. It's plain, it's simple. No hints required, don't have to seek out the information, and it's not hidden in a mystery. So we saw in Revelation the hint. We saw the simple. Let me give you another example. This one I think would be drosh. I'm no expert in this. I call it drosh. Maybe it's remez. I don't know. But it's John chapter 8. This is what it says. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Judean said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself, and he went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Again, if you're not familiar with Scripture, you're wondering, why in the world did they throw stones at him? Why were they going to stone him for saying, I am? Well, Drosh... You are led back to the burning bush where God calls himself the I am. So they knew exactly what he was saying, even though he didn't out and out say it. Hopefully when you start reading scripture, you can start thinking of some of the ways that Jesus and the apostles communicated, and it might help you understand a little better. All right, so there's three points that I wanted to point out in the letter to the Smyrnans. The first one, Jesus calls himself God without calling himself God, and I wanted to give you how that works. Second point to consider is this so-called synagogue of Satan. 
says, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. This verse has been used by anti-Semites for the last 2,000 years to put Jewish people down and refer to synagogues in general as synagogues of Satan. And they think they're being all biblical because they'll refer you to Revelation chapter 2. Unfortunately, they're not understanding a thing the scripture is saying. Let me read it to you again. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. This isn't about anti-Semitism. This is about exposing frauds. These people are claiming to be Jews, but they're not even Jews. Whatever they are, they're evil because they're called the synagogue of Satan. I have told you several times the number one rule for interpreting Scripture is what? Context, context, context. In Revelation chapter 2, three times something or someone is referred to as they call themselves that, but they're not. This is the second, but there's three. Revelation 2.2 says this. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. So let me ask you a question. Were these true apostles? No, it just says they claimed to be apostles, but they were not. They weren't real apostles who became evil. They were phonies. Then... Later on, in chapter 2, verse 20, it talks about this woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet, but she's not. So three times, there's something that calls itself something, but it's not. Nobody thinks the apostles are true apostles. Nobody thinks Jezebel is a true prophet. So why in the world do they think these are true Jews? Because of anti-Semitism. Falls into their paradigm. But the scripture plainly says these are phonies. They're not true Jews. They're the synagogue of Satan, different altogether. So because of anti-Semitism, I wanted to focus in on that verse and give you a better interpretation of it. Third point that I want to show you in the letter to Smyrna is in verse 10. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Part of me wants to make a bumper sticker out of that. Put it up on my window. Because... Who doesn't fear suffering? I mean, it's natural. None of us want to suffer. And if we were with our brothers and sisters in the Middle East and ISIS was coming into town and we knew they would charge an extremely high tax that we couldn't afford to live there as a Christian or die or convert or be banished, we would be afraid. Especially if you had nowhere to go. What if they said, okay, you've got to get out of Arizona, but Mexico won't let you in, California won't let you in, Nevada won't let you in, Colorado won't let you in, so you've got nowhere to go, and you can't pay the tax, and you're not going to convert. You might fear you're going to be afraid. Notice what Jesus tells the church. He doesn't say, I'm going to save you from harm. Here's what he says. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison for 10 days to test you, and you will suffer persecution. Be faithful even to the point of death. 
Jesus is telling his church, some of you are going to be martyred. Listen, this nonsense we're being taught in our country from many pulpits, that if you walk well with God, God will take care of you, is a satanic lie. Good people suffer. That's the biblical truth. And you don't have to be a scholar or a theologian to know this. Good people suffer. Oh, not if they have enough faith. So Jesus didn't have enough faith? Jesus suffered horribly, and he was the best of us. Oh, he was the exception. Oh, was he? What about the rest of the apostles that were martyred? And if you go through the scripture and make a list of all the godly men and women, you'll be able to make a list of how many of them suffered, which would be almost all of them. And many of them were martyred. I wish I could tell you walking with God meant that life was going to be pain-free, but that would be a lie. I would be lying to you. That's not true. And frankly, you already know it. You've, you've endured pain. You've endured sorrow, physical pain, emotional pain, mental pain. You've wondered, God, I thought you loved me. Why are we going through this? You've wondered. So don't swallow the lie that somebody tells you it's because you're sinful and you don't have enough faith. Jesus had plenty of faith and he suffered plenty. Faith and suffering go hand in hand. They're not mutually exclusive. But we in our country don't see serious spiritual persecution. But I think we will. It was just a few weeks ago that the mayor of Houston told a bunch of pastors, turn over your sermon notes to me or I'm going to put you in jail. Now, she had to back down because that's very unconstitutional and very illegal, but she tried. And then two ministers were told they have to officiate at gay weddings or they will be fined $1,000 a day and put in jail. This is just the start. This is just the start. So what I want to tell you is not, hey, don't worry, it's not going to happen to us. God loves us. Yes, God loves us and it might happen to us. What I want to tell you is what Jesus told his church. Don't be afraid. Just overcome and you will receive the crown of life. Now, he told the Smyrnans that they would be put in jail for 10 days, suffer persecution for 10 days, it says. Is that 10 literal days? Or do they stand for something else in the scripture? Or is it something we can't understand? I don't know. I know that when the plain sense makes sense, look for no other sense. And so I'm going with this one. I'm only going with that one because I have no evidence to go with any of these. Though one of these may be the truth. I just don't know. But when the plain sense makes sense, look for no other sense, you end up with nonsense. However, there is no historical data that Smyrna had a 10-day persecution. But that doesn't bother me in the least because we have very little historical data at all about Smyrna during that time. So there could be 20 books written about it. And we, don't, we don't know. They're lost. So the fact that we have no data on it is meaningless to me. It's an argument from silence. Nevertheless, many scholars go with one of these. Fox's Book of Martyrs, which is the most famous book on martyrdom, Chapter 2, Part 1, here's the heading. The Ten Primitive Persecutions. Barnhouse, one of the greatest scholars of our century, or last century, is, he wrote that, 
quote, everyone is in agreement, religious and secularists, that there were 10 great persecutions of that era. Maybe, but I don't think so, but possibly. I know that Pastor Polycarp, John's disciple, was martyred. In fact, Fox's Book of Martyrs talks about it. Let me read to you what it says about Pastor Polycarp's martyrdom. Polycarp, the venerable bishop of Smyrna. Bishop in our language would just be head pastor. He escaped. So Polycarp knew that they were after him. He didn't just stand there and say, kill me, I'll die for Jesus. He ran. Because that was smart. You know somebody's trying to kill you, you run. Jesus told that to his apostles. He said, I'm going to send you out like sheep amongst wolves. And when they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. Running is what you're supposed to do when you're being martyred or threatened with martyrdom. He escaped, but he was discovered by a child. After feasting the guards who apprehended him, okay, so he, he went, he hid, but some child ratted him out. The guards came. And, the guard, and Polycarp said, hey, guys, I know you have to take me away, but how about we have dinner first? Let me, let me serve you a nice dinner. So here's his, these guys are taking him off to death, and he, he serves them a Thanksgiving banquet. And then he says, I know you have to take me. I'm not going to resist. I won't run anymore. You have my word, but can I have an hour to pray? And they said, sure, but they didn't let him leave. They watched. And he prayed so passionately and so fervently that they were so touched that they regretted the fact that they found him. They didn't want to arrest him now. But they had to because if word got back that they didn't, they would have died. And like most people, they were more interested in their necks than somebody else's. So they took Pastor Polycarp before the, mag the chief magistrate. Now, these Romans, they didn't want to execute these people. But that was the law. So they begged Polycarp to deny Jesus. He says, listen, I don't want to kill you. Just deny Jesus and I won't have to. And Polycarp says, I'm 85 years old. I've been walking with Jesus all those years and he's never done me wrong. Why would I turn my back on someone who's never done me wrong? And so they took him over to the stake and they were going to nail him to the stake. He said, you don't have to nail me. I promise I won't move. So they tied him with ropes instead of nailing him down. And they lit the thing on fire. Now the story gets kind of legendary. Whether this happened or not, I'm not sure. Let me read to you what it says. At the stake to which he was only tied, but not nailed as usual, as he assured them he should stand immovable, the flames on their kindling encircled his body, like an arch without touching him. And the executioner, on seeing this, was ordered to pierce him with a sword, when so great a quantity of blood flowed out as it extinguished the fire. But his body was ordered to be consumed in the pile. They nevertheless collected his bones and as much of his remains as possible and caused them to be decently interred. Is it true? Don't know. Could have been. Not sure that it was. But hearing about Polycarp's bravery, remember what Jesus said through John to the church at Smyrna. Some of you are going to be martyred. Don't be afraid. Overcome. You will receive the crown of life. That's exactly what happened. The interesting thing about the crown of life that John told Polycarp he was going to get, 
Smyrna sat up on a hill. And the ancient historian said it looked like a crown on top of a hill. So here we have the chief pastor of the city that looks like a crown being told by Jesus if he overcomes, he'll receive the crown of life. Pretty beautiful story. So Pop said, be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. Faith over fear results in the crown of life. That's something we have to know. Those words we have to know. The day may come for us and it may be for some of our online viewers now that they're suffering persecution. And if you are, please let us know. We will pray for you. But remember what Jesus said. Be brave. Overcome. If you have the opportunity to flee, flee. And if not, stand proudly for Jesus. You'll see him soon. According to the Pew Research Center, right now over 75% of the world's population lives under severe religious constriction. 60 countries face persecution from their governments or their surrounding neighbors because they're Christian. 75% of the world is being pressured in their faith, and 60 countries are suffering persecution. Would you please join me in prayer for these people? Lord God, they are our brothers and they are our sisters, and they are being harmed and abused. And of course it's my prayer that they would be delivered. That would be my primary prayer. But I know it's not always your will. And you know better than I. And so I pray that they would be wise. And if they're able to flee, that they would. But Lord, if they cannot, I pray they would be brave. And like Pastor Polycarp. And like Jesus. They would stand firm. And do your will. And anticipate their glorious crown. Bless them. And keep them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The good news is right now, none of us are being pressured for or against Jesus. You have the free opportunity to make a decision to follow him. And if you've not made that decision, I'd encourage you to do so.